This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Wesley becomes a geologist. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique and review show that could save you, but probably won't bother. <gasps> My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week, we have the good look at the Prime Directive, even though a lot of the rest of the episode is kind of <laughs> iffy. Yeah. <laughs> we have an actual discussion of things and like try to look into some of the underlining uh, sort of thoughts on it. Hooray. I think it's interesting because I remember a lot of this episode as being kind of weird and cringy and kind of off. And it was always one of my family's like least favorite episodes. Uh, and I can see why. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of the ones that actually talks about something. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to, oh, here's some things that happened. And um, the end of the episode. <laughs> so this is the episode called Pen Pals. Oh, Data gets a pen pal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, someone to uh, who's far away to communicate with and uh, become friends with and uh, decide, hmm, maybe I don't want them to die. That's how pen pals work, right? Yeah. All right. That's, that's <laughs> mostly, yeah. It's, I mean, from the American perspective, yes. <laughs> I have a pen pal in a country that is probably being bombed to hell, especially in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this was written, and I, I, I now have political consciousness because I've been exposed to someone outside of American imperialistic bubble. Indeed. I do recall the uh, the Simpsons sort of uh, drawing a circle about uh, around that particular thing uh, where, uh, uh, I think it was Lisa who uh, got, was doing a pen pal thing with someone uh, from, in a faraway country, and... Uh, it's like, you know, our country's been taken over by the great General Zal. It's like, uh, uh, signed little girl. <laughs> this particular episode was written by Hannah Lewis Shear, who wrote When the Bow Breaks hmm. and did rewrites for Coming of Age and Skin of Evil and also worked on We Will Always Have Paris. So that's, that's an interesting track record you got going there. Indeed. Uh, and, uh. We'll uh, also be uh, back for sure in uh, for Deep Space Nine uh, for QLS. Which uh, that's one of the that's fun. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's not yeah. not the best Q episode. But... Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is not. I don't want to say charming, but just kind of weird fluff, I guess. Yeah, you gave Q an excuse to do Q things. Yes. She'll also be uh, back for uh, The Price. Don't remember what that one's about. Something with Ferengis, I think. Oh, is that the, the wormhole one? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Yeah. That was a good one. I like yeah. that one. All right, co-stars. We have co- co-stars, because not only is there an alien, we have this whole, like, one of these little science teams that supposedly the Enterprise is just crawling with. Hmm, science team. Oh, oh, no, I'm having flashbacks to Dr. Coomer screaming something, but anyway... So, first we got Nicholas Castone, who plays Davies. Uh, he's appeared in the Titanic and the West Wing and Dragonfly, and is on returns to Star Trek for DS Nine. He's been all kinds of all kinds of places. He just gets around this yeah. dude. 
the Jake effect, uh, the cell. Um, so Duncan, Jack, Jane. Uh, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, I believe it's uh, Cascone. Is it? Yeah, Cascone. Oh. Probably pronounced that badly. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Cascone. Yeah, that looks Italian. Uh, Dragonfly. Charmed for an episode. The agency. The agency of what? I don't know. Maybe it's about having agency. Yeah, you have agency. <laughs> Good job. You can make your own decisions in life. Good work. So that could be an interesting. It's a it's a TV show that's a very boring sitcom, but it's slowly about the characters becoming self aware. <laughs> it's like why do we keep running into these weird, bizarre situations? It's like every week there's a new one. I'm just so tired of it. <laughs> then we have Anne H. Gillespie, who is playing Hildebrandt. Gillespie. Uh, Gillespie. Yeah. Anne H. Gillespie, who's playing Hildebrandt. Uh, she started acting in, what is this, Ryan's Hope? I don't know what that is. Hmm. Sometimes I take these notes like it's going to mean something to me later. And, uh, I'm guessing it's maybe uh, 147 episodes, so I'm guessing some sort of daytime show? A lot of people from this era got started in soap operas. Yeah. <laughs> so probably that. <laughs> uh, and then is best known for playing Jackie Taylor on Beverly Hills 90210. Indeed. Yeah, you know, there's been in a few other random things like ER, diagnosis, murder, you know, that sort of thing. It was just in the first two seasons of 90210, which I think is is distinct from Beverly Hills 90210. It's like a sequel. It's like happened eight years later, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've not paid any attention to these things other than knowing it as the that show with the numbers. Yes. <laughs> It's like uh, the, the Beverly Hills version, at least, is like about some high schoolers in a, like a, a, a rich area, I guess, having drama. Yeah. yeah. Rich people with drama. <laughs> but, but like, I think before they invented the soap opera and they replaced that rich people with drama with the or not with the with reality TV. Oh, no. Because then that would just be the hills. Yes. Because <laughs> now we have uh, rich people drama that is reality TV. Then we've got Whitney Rydbeck who plays Allen's very prolific TV and movie actor with over 50 shows. I'm not going all over, but uh, they include Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Hmm. And Buck movie. Rogers and Scrubs and Oliver and Company. And, uh, Friday the 13th, part six. P- the picture I keep seeing from here is uh, from MASH, and he was like an only one episode, so I'm like, okay. Yeah. Sleeper. Love at first bite. <laughs> vampires <laughs> yep rocky 2 1941 american war comedy jason lives <laughs> murder she wrote a very brady sequel barely remember what happens in that one wait what is this angel angels with angels or angels with angles angles with angels Ang- angular angels and maybe yeah what what angles could do they mean like they're they're scheming maybe they're in los angeles maybe all right <laughs> finally the only important person in this episode all those other people are side characters the yes. only important actor in this entire episode <laughs> the, the, the yeah. person who's uh has the most makeup as well yeah nikki cox is playing sarjenka who's the resident alien of the yep. episode our alien that we have to have a dilemma about she's been acting since she was four in shows like baywatch 
uh, Mama's Family and Blossom. Mm -hmm. She later got a leading role as the daughter in Unhappily Ever After. Um, she starred in The Norm Show, which I don't think took off as much as they wanted it to. No. <laughs> and uh, she was the titular character in the show Nikki. It's Nikki White. Yeah, hasn't been doing too much since 2011, but, you know, it's... Uh... Has a lot of credits, all the same, and uh, was in General Hospital for a good while as Gina. She's been around. I think it's fun that she was just this random weird alien, and then went on to all <laughs> these sitcoms. Yes, <laughs> was in Sister Sister, <gasps> Terminator Two, and Erie, Indiana. Do you remember Eerie, that show? Indiana. No, yeah. I don't remember that show. <laughs> so it's like the X Files, but you're a kid, and you only live in one town, and all the weird stuff comes to you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Take it to today's episode, the uh, optometrist is mind-bending people. Oh, no. Interesting. In this episode... They have that, that thing like, <laughs> like in, in Buffy where they are like, actually, this weird little nowhere town is over a really important demonic thingy. That's why everything interesting in the world happens here. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, it just kept... There was just a lot of weird stuff that just kind of happened and, you know... Because your kids, you know, you can't be, like, murdering people about it, usually. Right? Well, probably. Unless it's a very different kind of show. Yes. <laughs> this was trying to be kid-friendly here. You know, it was the 90s. All right. We're going to have actual things to talk about with this episode, so we may as well get going. Mm -hmm. So, the Enterprise is exploring the Secundi Dreams. I, this can't be right. They, they wrote Secundi Dreams. That's, that cannot be what it's called. No. <laughs> Uh, so I, I recall something about like maybe the Secundus Quadrant or something like that. Or? Yeah, I mean, it's the Secundus something, but I think the second word just got autocorrected. But I do yeah. like it. We're in the <laughs> dream sector. <laughs> I like that. Maybe they should do that more often. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's made up words. It's the made up word sector of the Federation. <laughs> it's a part of space where there are five star systems that have unusual levels of ge geologic instability. So much so that since the last time they sent a probe to this area, uh, several of the planets have broken up and formed asteroid belts. Huh. That's a little unusual. Uh, wait a moment broken up planets asteroid belts is there a doomsday machine wandering around <laughs> well like, i didn't have a great way to work this into the thing but Riker has my favorite like scientific line ever <laughs> like Worf looks at all this and goes could this be an unknown intelligence and Riker says it's geology not malevolence <laughs> <laughs> now i'm not convinced of that Riker, but go ahead <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could not. Maybe it could be. I don't know. I'm I'm in the middle of reading the uh I'm in the middle of reading the fifth season, the Broken Earth series, in mm -hmm. which that is exactly what's happening. Geology is malevolent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or it could be a malevolence that kicked off something and then geology took over. Oh, it's both in this book. But... Oh, okay. <laughs> Evil geology. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of the entire series. It's a three-book series about evil geology. <laughs> it's really good. I'd re really, really recommend it. Hmm. So meanwhile, uh, Picard has apparently nothing to do, so he and Troy are on their way to the holodeck where Picard is going to do some riding because he's a horse girl. So this kind of kicks off a bit of a trend in terms of uh, various Enterprise captains being all about horses. Yeah, apparently the Enterprise is just the ship where you put the horse girls. Yes. 
So, uh, you know, apparently Patrick Stewart wasn't super, you know, keen on, you know, riding a horse, you know, like, you know, Picard's all about mm-hmm. it, but, you know, the actor isn't. Uh, and so when they, you know, they eventually get to Star Trek Generations, uh, he's interacting with William Shatner, who's like, yeah, I've written horses a lot. You know, let's, uh, I'm going to like teach you how to like not be scared of the horse. So, Yeah. <laughs> The uh, funny thing with that is he is all about the the motor vehicles. Mm-hmm. Like they they could not keep him out of that dune buggy when they yes. were filming. <laughs> when they were filming Nemesis, it's time for another donut. <laughs> so anyway, Picard's a horse girl, which I can say contend is a gender neutral term, and we should be using it more often. Uh, he has the computer make him a horse, and then he talks about the bond between rider and animal. Etc. Before he gets to have any fun, Riker calls him to the bridge. Is hey, the first visual from the system that they're apro- approaching? Hmm. Well, uh, this is just kind of awkward timing here. Uh, all right, let's uh, head up to the bridge. So they get to see a planet that had a thriving ecosystem last time they were here, and is now just a primordial lava world. Hmm. Well, this seems kind of bizarre, honestly. That all this is just happening, you know, at the same time with all these various planets in the same area. Huh. Yeah, it is a little odd. Uh, so this is somewhat laid-back mission. Not much going on, apparently. Not very important. Riker has the idea of putting Wesley in charge of the planetary survey team so that he gets a big job as team lead and gets to learn stuff and boss senior officers around, etc. Hmm. Well, that will hopefully give him some uh, confidence about being in charge and maybe a chip on his shoulder as a result because he's like, hey, I'm now better than all these other officers, not just wow. the command crew. <laughs> so uh, they tell Wesley the news, and he is just weirdly indifferent. <laughs> now, okay. Yeah, some of that is, like, I sort of read that, you know, you know, it could be he's just being really awkward. It's like, I came into the room where everyone who's in, like, you know, a big wig on the ship is, like, looking at me, and this is weird. Uh, alternatively... Maybe he's not actually enthusiastic, but feels he needs to be. <laughs> it's like, oh, hooray, geology. I'm someone who studies warp fields. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Data's working on something which entails taking half of a bridge console apart and leaving it all over the floor. Which uh, uh, annoys Warp. Warp is annoyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I do kind of appreciate that this is a, uh, you know, like, all right. Of all the places where you could be doing something like this, you have to do it right here at this particular console on the bridge. Because apparently yeah. there's no, like, labs somewhere else on the on the ship where you can sort of do stuff like this. I know, vi- visually, the way this ship is put together doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? This is, this is a readout. This is, a com- this is an input-output display. Mm-hmm. Why are the <laughs> fundamental internal workings of the sensor array in it? What yeah. what is in there that is making the sensors function? It's a keyboard and a monitor. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe that normally this keyboard and monitor doesn't talk to the right parts of the ship in any you know direct connection, and so maybe he has to reroute a whole bunch of stuff, and maybe he had to in- install some sort of special radio tuner as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically what he's doing here, he says he's, he's trying to detect things outside of the sensor's normal range and fine. Uh, but as we find out later, the thing that he's really doing is just reinventing ham radio. Yes. 
So apparently in the future, uh, they don't listen to uh, certain frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum. So just turn on the radio and start listening and then, mm -hmm. you know, see what we can pick up. So Wesley goes around and gets advice on team building. Um, basically, everyone says, stop worrying. Everyone on this ship is a professional and they are going to do their jobs. Yeah, uh, that's actually pretty good advice, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the, if there is a problem, you know, then come to us if you need direct advice. But don't start, you know, pre-worrying about problems that don't exist yet. Which I think is just a great message in general of like, this is a work environment where you can trust everyone is going to do their damn jobs without too much of an ego. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, we treat people good and they do the things and all of the best people are here. So, yeah. no, they're not go like we ordered them to take orders from you and that's what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if there is a problem, you know, uh, they uh, know that they're going to be violating their orders to me or from me, uh, you know, if they violate the orders from you. So, you know, there's still a enforced hierarchy of the uh, command structure to be applied here. So why are you worrying about this? Mm hmm. So Data is in his quarters now because he was annoying people on the bridge. <laughs> uh, he's detected an old school radio signal coming from one of the planets that they're surveying. Uh, when he cleans it up and amplifies it, it becomes a little girl's voice asking if anybody is out there. Is there anybody out there? Is there anybody out there? Meanwhile, Wesley's organized his team. Uh, he's got Davies, the most senior, um, even offering to take over if Wesley gets in over his head, but in a teasing way. Like, <laughs> I really like the dynamics here because Wesley is just like freaking the hell out about this, and everybody's just <laughs> teasing him and messing with him a little bit, but in a very professional way. It's like, hey, I'll take over. Uh, yeah, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, if you want <laughs> to not do this, I I can do this, but you know, you're still in charge, so. You know, uh, they get started fine. Wesley seems to be actually be a pretty good team leader, but he apparently wants them to run some sort of ecogram scan of the planet search for the lithium. Davies and the team go, you know, that could be a waste of time. And he sort of caves, even though like really they're just giving him like general advice. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, this might the this is a complicated, heavy resource intensive thing. Are you sure that's what you want us to do? Yeah, it's like, you know, there are we could be doing a whole bunch of other things you want us to do so make sure you want this to be done mm -hmm. uh sometime later apparently we, we got some time skips in this episode that aren't very clearly communicated mm -hmm. uh data searches out picard who is finally getting to ride his damn horse yep <laughs> now i do yeah. believe this is like said to be like six weeks after uh some of the other stuff was resolved with wesley but yeah yeah it says it's like eight weeks. Yeah. <laughs> or who knows when Wesley started his team. It's hard to say. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> That's why I'm saying like there seems to be some time jumping in here that, that I don't know if if the data storyline is time jumping and the Wesley one isn't. If all this stuff is assumed to be contiguous, what's happening? Who knows? But anyway, uh, data goes, hey, I've been talking to a random alien on one of the planets for eight weeks. Um, they don't know about interstellar life and her entire people are in extreme danger and are going to die. And I thought you should know that I've kind of been breaking Starfleet regulations. Yeah. So, uh, you know, don't mind that. We have a dilemma to worry about, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get in trouble for this, right? 
So Picard calls a meeting of the entire senior staff. <laughs> yeah. So uh, everyone come to my quarters, not the uh, not the conference room, because, you know, we don't want this to be official. <laughs> uh, apparently, while that's happening, Wesley interrupts Riker's date because kid has no chill. Yeah, poor Riker. <laughs> yeah. He wants some more advice on command. Riker says that you just need to ask yourself what Picard would do, you know, because when Picard wants something done, no one's questioned him. And that's the real trick, you know. Once <laughs> you decide what you want to do, nobody's going to question you. Yes. I guess there's also the uh, the uh, other subtext uh, when you think about uh, Wesley and Picard's specific relationship uh, with regard to Wesley's dad as well. So if he overthinks this, this could be really awkward. Have someone on your team get killed, then you have to go talk to your mom about it. So anyway, that's depressing. Well, we know that's his biggest fear because of the, you know, the test thing. Indeed. So mm. like he's going to order this scan and it's going to blow up on somebody. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> and there's going to be a guy who doesn't like want to get up and move across the room slightly uh, as a result. And he's going to die. And then there's going to be an admiral who shows up. It's like, congratulations, Wesley. And he's going to be like, what the heck's going on here, guys? <laughs> So Wesley immediately runs back to his team, tells them to run that scan he wanted, and they go, yep, you got it, boss. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the meantime, the, uh, the team was like, hmm, we probably should have run that scan because there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Then meanwhile, Riker is called off to talk to Data about what he's been up to. <laughs> so the situation stands thusly. Data's made contact with a small girl from a planet that is about to die, killing her entire civilization. But this is a pre-contact, pre-warp society, so they cannot help because of the Prime Directive. Indeed. So, uh, you know, as they uh, they say, say in some contexts, you know, let's, we could watch the show, but, you know, can't lift a finger about it. Mm -hmm. So Riker goes, yep, that's the Prime Directive. We have to follow that and do this, etc. That seems odd for his character. Yeah, the I, impulsive, I try to do the right thing type person. But, yeah. You know, there is, I guess, you know, maybe a you know sign that he has, uh, you know, certain rules uh, that are sort of underlying despite the impulsiveness there. Uh, and alternatively, this could be one of those moments where he's sort of becoming Elder Riker, who is a, a bit more reserved and a bit more, you know, steady mm. in his uh, habits there. Because, well, you know, Jonathan Franks became more of a director as opposed to an actor over time. <laughs> uh, Flasky wants to help damn the consequences mm -hmm. and Worf really truly does not care yes <laughs> you know Worf uh is fairly consistent in terms of uh his sort of view on the rules that you know you follow the rules that's part of meeting your duty and meeting your duty is honorable even if the rules are you know weird or horrific in some way so mm -hmm. you know to avoid that you know, that whole sort of uh, moral dilemma you just don't think about it. So they explore what they've got here. You know, the the whole argument is basically if you start interfering, when do you stop? You yeah. can stop a natural disaster. Okay. What if you find a plague or a war or a dictatorial government that's killing a lot of people? Yeah. It's, what level do you want to be, uh, you know, coming into uh, to be the, ma you know, the magical savers here? Or uh, and at what level do you uh, just let them, uh, you know, get themselves killed or... Uh, kill themselves or get killed by somebody else they also have a weird loophole that isn't talked about much in the prime directive mm -hmm. uh they can help if they are asked directly to help by anybody oh. 
Yeah, but then, this is a small child who doesn't understand she's talking to aliens. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but still there is a, uh, a way to interpret what is being said as a, a specific request here. Uh, and thus you can help. So if a card orders data disconnect the signal, uh, during the process, the computer plays back her pleas, basically her recorded messages that data hasn't been listening to. Mm-hmm. And she's basically like, hey, come back. Everything's awful. And Picard's like, well, shit, that's kind of a plea for help, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess we can do something now. And jeepers, I feel guilty if I don't. So let, mm-hmm. let's go do the thing. Uh, thankfully for all of them, Wesley's big complicated scan has revealed that these planets have an intensely large amount of dilithium that has formed on the planet's surface in such a way that it has essentially become a giant dilithium generator. Yeah. So I want to sort of talk about this specifically right here for a few moments that, you know, that you have in these planets, this dilithium structure, they uh, describe it as forming into a specific sort of lattice. Uh, And it's causing this, you know, energetic effect and, you know, destroying the planets as a result. And, you know, it's like, okay, so there might be, you know, just a general, you know, increase in dilithium in this part of the galaxy you know that could potentially happen but also all of these planet breakups are happening roughly at the same time in terms of you know geological scales here so it's to me very 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 suspicious that this is just happening to all happen at the same time here uh, so it sort of to me so implies that either that there is something in the in the distant past that created a lot of dilithium simultaneously that just happened to get embedded on these planets or potentially someone actually did go about and see these plants with dilithium or the process to make it in order to come back later and harvest it on geological timescales potentially uh and you know that you know that they'd be effectively self uh, harvesting in a way that they would break up the planet around them, leaving that you know delicious dilithium behind for them just to sweep in and pick up. But, so the know. aliens are going to show up later, like, whoa, 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 what's life doing here? <laughs> Yous wasn't supposed to evolve on our generator mining world. <sighs> Dang it, guys. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, th- th- yeah this, this is opening up a, a possibility to all sorts of crazy stuff going on here in the larger universe, but we don't have to worry about this episode because we're actually mostly focused on the prime directive stuff from here on out. Yeah. Well, this is a prime directive episode and that would be a renewable energy episode. Yes. <laughs> that would Can't be have... a human cost of mining and energy ecos- and energy infrastructures. Yeah. And so I, I will give them props for not trying to do all sorts of different things simultaneously, but this is an opportunity for a follow-up if any uh, okay. people that write for Star Trek, you know, are listening here. Which is I just imagine... I just Sadness. imagine the episode where some dire representatives of a hyper-advanced society show up and go, if you do not let us harvest the dilithium from this planet, it will kill billions when this world contains only thousands. Uh, <laughs> so you want to murder people either way? Uh, maybe you're the bad guys. <laughs> anyway, Wesley's team uh, is working on a way to stop the planetary breakup because, you know, it's it, it, now they know what's going on. Yeah, and you know we could uh, potentially do this to uh, all the remaining planets uh, that are you know showing its effect here, and you know maybe if we run into a planet down the road, we'll have something similar going on. We could also you know it's like this is how you solve this problem. So 
oh no, the Federation colony over here suddenly has this problem. Well, now we don't have to worry about it. Hooray! So Data has calculated the safest place on the entire planet. Uh, Picard decides that, you know what, we've gone this far. You may as well tell the kid how to get her and her family to safety. But the atmospheric instability has blocked the signal. Data requests to beam down to the planet and deliver the message personally. That does seem like you're going a bit far there, like logically. <laughs> you've yeah. you've kind of jumped from we're doing this wibbly magic science thing in space that no one will ever really know about until like they're advanced enough to understand their own geologic history and go like, wait, something weird happened here? Yes. <laughs> but uh, Dana wants to go and uh, deliver the message that we're here and we're here to help. So, yeah. And, you know, technically he was ordered to do that, so can't go back on the orders now. <laughs> so Data beams down to a living room sort of place with a big disappearing wall door window sort of area. Yeah, it's a good opportunity for green screen. Yeah, he looks out into violent lava flows and volcanoes and etc. The place is empty, but soon after Day arrives, a young alien girl returns. This is Sarjinka who was here to get her transmitter so that she would be there if Data tried to contact her again. Mm -hmm. Data decides that they're not really going to be able to survive getting back to her family, so he beams them back to the ship. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, so you don't need the translator, uh, the, the transmitter anymore, uh, but hey, at least you met, met up with Data, so yeah. time to go on a crazy sci-fi adventure, kid. So now on the bridge, it's really hard to tell if Picard is more upset that this is a pre-contact alien that is now on board his hyper-advanced spaceship she under no circumstances can learn about, or if it's because the, there's a kid here. <laughs> uh, you know, there is uh, good arguments to be made on either one of those, honestly. <laughs> so she tries to get taken to sick bay, but she won't leave Data, so he needs to, like, stick with her the entire time. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Uh, you could sort of stand by me while I save your planet. Um, hold on, kid. So most of these teams come up with a plan to shoot resonators into the planet that will break up the dilithium and stop the, the geologic instability. Um, this works. Planet calms down. Uh, everything's fine now. You know, mm -hmm. that much geologic activity and ash and whatever certainly won't create a nuclear winter that will... Uh, upset the environment for generations yeah you know it's uh gonna be one of those uh things where you know the clouds just clear and everything's fine because you know all the volcanoes stopped instantly uh so data takes her to sick bay where she finds a fun rock uh pulaski drugs her and begins to remove her memories so that mm. she can just live her normal life as if they've never been never met now i'm going to talk about this later just fyi <laughs> so data returns her and her rock back home so she'll wake up and go where did this weird rock come from yes <laughs> maybe i found it while looking for uh you know the my home in all this lava fields here you know <laughs> and when he comes back to the ship he tries to apologize to picard Picard goes all you did was remind us that we have obligations to other life and that remembering people like sarjenka even though she won't remember us is just part of being human all right, this is a little confusing, but okay. I guess Data uh, is, is becoming more human now. Now let's go deal with those drug addicts I decided not to do anything about. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, that's where we kind of uh, end things here. 
so yeah, it's it's kind of stupid. It's it's this this whole data's data's whole weird like I've got to help a child because I'm unemotional things a little weird and janky and the kid is like too sickeningly sweet. Yes, <laughs> though I will say that maybe one of the reasons data kind of you know started ignoring the prime directive himself uh, uh, even after sort of figuring out oh this kid probably doesn't know about space travel. Uh, might come down to his ethical pro program, uh, which is kind of one of those you know deep uh, parts of his uh, programming that you know underlies a lot of what you know his his decision making process is on things, mm -hmm. uh, and so you know it could be very much uh, a case of that's overriding his you know sense of duty and following the rules sort of stuff here uh, in a uh, very you know thing we've already covered sort of thing, but mm -hmm. takes place later sort of way yeah your ethical subroutines are too strong to deal with this weird <laughs> arbitrary uh rule that they mostly made up for story justification for why um the supposed good guys don't use all of their vast resources to help people yes <laughs> you know i will give the uh you know, the i guess the general evolution of that uh some credit that you know having the prime directive as a means to uh, discourage the horrors of colonialism by, uh, you know, Starfleet and the uh, Federation. You know, that's kind of a, you know, a good way to sort of take it. You don't want to be going out there and basically, you know, pushing around, uh, you know, you know, civilizations with, you know, less technology than you, uh, and you know, exploiting them and that sort of thing. So having a general rule of, yeah, you just don't interact with these uh, folks here. Let them sort of get on uh, on their own way. You know, that's seems like a very reasonable sort of thing to do. Well, it's it's really interesting to look at this as a product of the late 80s, because this is the era, you know, just after the end of the Cold War. The Cold War had been winding down for quite a while at this point. Mm -hmm. And we as Americans suddenly have to deal with the fact that all of these proxy wars and instilling democracy everywhere and all this stuff didn't necessarily turn out as well as we thought it would. Yes, uh, especially when we did the opposite in terms of democracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so we're instilling uh, Western values, yeah, by getting rid of their democracy because they were voting for too many communists. Uh yeah, except in somewhere like like Japan, where instilling democracy and capitalism worked too well, and then at this point we were like, "Oh no, they're taking over the world." <laughs> we have to fear the foreigners. Uh, which ones are this, this de uh, decade? Uh, Japan's doing economically well. Uh, them, yeah. So overall, this prime directive idea, as it's explained, they don't they don't explain it well in this episode. They have this like. At what point do we stop helping? Which I also have a point to make about. But like, mm -hmm. they, they never have a decent argument for why they shouldn't help people. They, they just cannot construct one. Yes. But <laughs> the general thing that they say is they have a little bit of the we shouldn't instill our values on people anti-colonialism vibe. And they also have the explanation from the earlier episode, which is no matter how good of intentions you have, it can always turn out badly if you try to help someone. Mm -hmm. And coming from this late 80s perspective, you can look at what that was meant to communicate, which is we, 
as Americans had this noble pursuit of instilling Western values and democracy in all of these poor, struggling countries and defending them from communism. And that turned out bad. Therefore, even the best intentions can turn out horribly. I will also, you know, sort of, you know, point out that, you know, the, the there's been sort of after that a little bit of a back and forth in terms of the uh, political moods of things that, you know, there was a uh, a very uh, strong uh, impulse, uh, at least in terms of uh, advertising from the neoconservative uh, sort of movement in the early 2000s was like, maybe we should be instilling democracy and things like that, because, you know, trying to step back is been horrible and stuff and no we don't know how to actually do that but trust us <laughs> well the particular problem that i see with this argument in either direction is this just generalized idea that th that was the justification that the u.s government was using for doing all of these things during the cold war and then immediately after mm -hmm. um but that's not actually what was being done. That was not, in fact, the intention. Yes. <laughs> so Which, the idea, you know, including the including the neoconservative, uh, you know, example I just uh, mentioned there, that mm -hmm. you know the that that was the excuse being floated for we want to have a unipolar, uh, you know, polar or multipolar sort of uh, structure to our world in terms of major powers and you know having some uh, collection of client states that are the democracy uh, nations means that we have you know particular uh, puppets out there that are all banded together under the, uh, the name of democracy and that's how we're going to control other countries yeah this is yeah. basically <laughs> new imperialism yes right we're not we're not running these places as sub empires they're not colonies they're not part of the grand american system you know ex except mm -hmm. for uh you know puerto rico and american samoa and all those places we don't talk about but um we aren't doing empire we're doing democracy building it just mm -hmm. so happens that all of these now poor countries that are outside of the uh what what political theorists are now calling the um the imperial core countries or the west as we generally colloquialize it um just happen to be now in a place where they have to funnel all of their money and resources into the imperial core indeed so yeah it's like oh yeah you will give you lots of loans to uh do all that stuff that you've been uh struggling to uh get done now because we haven't been helping at all uh or you know running counter to what you want to be doing uh so but now you're not massively in debt to us so you have to pay us money just kind of because so a lot of these things, and I, I understand the political mindset of the 80s was very much a, we're looking at our stuff a little bit critically, but it's so halfway. Because mm -hmm. like, this didn't turn out well. The reason it didn't turn out well is because no matter your intentions, it can always turn out badly. Not, maybe we lied about our intentions. Yeah. <laughs> Like, oh. So extrapolating that into this idea that trying to help someone with good intentions will always turn out badly instead of maybe you should examine your intentions. Indeed. I'm reminded of uh, uh, Angel One there. Uh, mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, they were going to a, a planet to do a thing and they described this planet specifically as a mid-20th century technological level. 
that they've already had lots of contact with. Yeah. And I'm just sort of thinking, so you're basically admitting in the episode that you want this planet to eventually become part of the Federation. And so you're going to interact with them in a certain way and in the hopes that that they will, you know, eventually sort of bend to your, you know, general ideology and sign up to uh, to join your empire. Um, okay. I guess that makes clear what your actual intentions are, but now you're talking about the prime directive for the rest of the episode. You know, we can't interfere and, uh, you know, we're going to have dilemmas about things if we're going to be trying to, you know, save these people's lives here. So, you know, we are hiding behind the prime directive in order to let them murder people. Well, and, the prime yeah. directive is a weird justification <laughs> for that, <Yeah. laughs> given the way that they've talked on the rest of the show, because we have that now. Mm-hmm. If an American citizen does something wrong in another country, we tend to respect that country's laws, mm-hmm. yeah, more or less, depending on whether we like the country or not. Yes. But that's the general idea is like, if someone does something in that country's jurisdiction, we don't have a right to come in and tell them they're doing it wrong. I guess, you know, in that particular sort of uh, example, you know, it's, it's very much a, uh, a case, you know, uh, like that. But they're also doing big circles as like, the reason we're doing this is because we are enlightened, more enlightened than you guys are. And you need to be mm-hmm. on that side of things. But I would also argue that a lot of the, the arguments that they're using in this episode also are not holding up well just because of the um, level of magic technology we have reached here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're not actually examining their intentionality at all. They're saying our intention is that we'll do a good thing and then it will always turn out badly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the examples that you're taking from history to work this out are almost exclusively America sent a bunch of guns somewhere and then somehow that didn't turn out well. Yes. <laughs> so uh, a private little war, uh, you know, over and over again. And yes. whoops. <laughs> and now the, um, the thing that you have with the discussion of how far do we go? Can we can we can save them from a natural disaster? Should we save them from a plague? Should we save them from an evil government or a war? It's like if your intention, which they keep saying in the Prime Directive, their intention is to not interfere with the natural evolution of another culture or society. Which means if you can prevent an entire population from being randomly killed without them ever knowing about it, you didn't exactly interfere with their natural evolution, aside from the fact that you kept them from all being dead. Yes. Uh, which you do have arguments of scale in that. A lot of, you know, evolution as a biological measure, not a political measure necessarily, but some of that too, is so influenced by random chance. You know, the, the most the best adapted animal on the entire planet could have just happened to have been hit by a random rock. And you know, there's no way to evolve around that. Yes. (laughs) I suddenly, without having any generations of, uh, to, of, uh, you know, descendants to uh, come up with this, have evolved to, uh, you know, be immune to be, you know, you know, high velocity objects coming at my head. Uh, wait, that doesn't actually exist. Mm, I'm dead. <laughs> you know, could happen, but the, the the possibility of that being a useful evolutionary, you know, thing that would keep herself around are pretty slim. 
Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's you know uh, smarter to be able to avoid predators or you know be able to eat things that other pilks can't. So we have an exclusive uh, you know uh, food source here. You know stuff like that. You know yeah. filling niches as opposed to being immune to all things forever. Ah, well, you know, like uh, Cambrian Explosion. Everyone loves the Cambrian Explosion. All those weird things with too many eyes and tubes coming out of their faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems, like a, oh, gosh. <laughs> seems like a decent amount of those things got wiped out in one really bad mudslide. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah well, we've uh, got a lot of crazy stuff here. And then suddenly, oh, our environment changed slightly. Um, well, who's left? Uh... That guy. All right. He has like some fins or something like that. I guess so you have that a we're scale. You have a scale issue. If you're saying how much of this planet do we save? If you're saying there's going to be a natural disaster that's going to kill everyone on this one continent. That might be inter- that arguably could be interfering with the natural evolution of a society because now you have this giant group of people that would not have otherwise existed on this planet doing things. Indeed. But. When you're t- definitely when you're talking about an entire world's population dying off, like th- that's it. That's the end of their natural evolution. Yeah, <laughs> you can't evolve once you are dead. Which you know maybe they should say specifically sometime in Star Trek. Yeah, and there are some interesting arguments to be had. There's even people arguing now over like conservation efforts for uh, endangered or or near extinct animals like we as humans are coming in and trying very very hard to maintain the status quo as we as humans see it which is the way the world has existed for the last couple of thousand years while we've been around Uh um but and i guess thinking about nature in that way which has been you know five six hundred years but while I personally think that we just have to do whatever we as humans morally think is going to work out, because otherwise you're getting into some weird, can we predict the future shit? There is, in fact, a very viable argument to say that as an environment changes, some species just die out. And that's just how evolution functions. Which I guess then begs the question, you know, when when can we be certain that that's going to be what's going to happen? If we were not here to interfere, that is, one way or another. Well, like, if you, either direction, the, right now we're saying, well, we caused this problem, so we should do something to mitigate the damage. And that's our prerogative as, like, the animals, in, like, thinking animals mm-hmm. involving ourselves in these things. But that's not necessarily the de facto moral argument that you could go to. You could say that regardless of why an environmental change happens, environmental changes perpetuate a new homeostasis, and that is just what is happening. And so, yeah, in that case, you know, we can chop down all the trees and it's going to be fine because, uh, you know, what is left over is going to be, uh, you know, the uh, the new homeostasis, and that is A-OK. Well, the thing is that it's not going to be fine from a human perspective because the thing that we always forget about homeostasis is that the world does not balance itself with us in mind indeed <laughs> so even with this you know you know you know particular argument you know it does then follow up it's like all right do we have a place in this no- new status quo hmm and i'm not saying that i believe it to be a good argument i would say that we should do the things that we as people feel are the right thing to do because that's how people work 
Yes. I feel like trying to justify it as a natural course of decision making becomes the problem. Yes. Uh, in fact, I'd argue that a lot of uh, appealing to natural order uh, sort of arguments tend to be dubious in various ways, uh, you know, because then you kind of who decides what that natural order is. Mm hmm. Yeah, because you have all these weird people will almost exclusively focus on the negative outcomes of things in a way to try to justify inaction. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if we take the prime directive example, if we save this planet that could create the next super Hitler who goes out and destroys every world in the in the immediate vicinity. Like, um. yeah, it could, but it could also be the dude who cures intergalactic cancer. Like, we don't yes. know. You're, you're doing some weird future predicting at that point and deciding that you're responsible for the outcome of, of a person that you saved the life of. So it's kind of, you know, taking away their, uh, you know, the, their decision-making process entirely that you are now making people who make individual decisions, you know, for sure, you know, you know, automatons that will be progressing forward from your decision and you are the only one who is capable of making decisions in this so you know well you're also you very much excusing uh colonialism and imperialism as just one like moral option of how to fix a society right the fact that you're kind of comparing humanitarian aid which is a lot of what they'd be talking about here. Saving a continent from a, you know, super volcano is basically an extreme form of humanitarianism that is facilitated by the advanced technology at these people's disposal. Mm -hmm. So saying that you're going to do that, that you aren't going to do that because it interferes with the natural evolution and you comparing that to like the evils of colonialism are basically saying like saving someone from a natural disaster is the same thing as coming in uprooting their society and telling them they're going you're going to like kill and enslave them if they don't adhere to your belief system which is a little absurd <laughs> to put it bluntly uh and you know it, kind of comparing apples to kumquats here you know or yeah maybe kiwi fruit or maybe a rock <laughs> it is reasonable to assume when you're dealing with these um like pre-contact societies the thing that you're trying to avoid is not in fact this like culture like interfering with cultural evolution you're trying to uh, to avoid an extreme form of cultural contamination mm -hmm. which is a pretty good idea but you've taken that to such an extreme to say like if we can prevent this person's planet from blowing up in a way that they will never know about that is not the same thing as cultural contamination or colonialism. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think uh, uh, how, uh, Stargate SG-1 actually has a, uh, a, fun way to, uh, a, a fun episode where they sort of do this from the opposite perspective of the, uh, the folks you know, trying to solve a major problem but can't. And you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the very powerful species out there that could interfere... Uh, isn't because you know to do so would you know culturally contaminate things because you know various you know things that are happening in the episode uh and so you know the the episode has the uh, the team 
doing this big, you know, uh, project to try to fix the problems. Like, yeah, the chances of this are very slim, but it's the best thing we got. And we are kind of the ones who, you know, caused this to happen in the first place. So we're putting all, all our effort in. Uh, and, you know, by doing this effort, even though it would technically fail, uh, the it gives the all-powerful aliens uh, enough uh, a plausibility that oh yeah it just happened to work uh to uh to sort of you know do things without you know effectively coming in here and contaminating the culture and you know giving the uh the locals this idea that oh there's an all-powerful you know alien species out there that could just save us whenever and so you know they uh sort of avoid all that sort of side effects there and you know it's it's sort of a uh <laughs> a fun bit of plausible deniability being at play here, but that's also very much a specific sort of case where, you know, there is reasons that the cultural contamination would happen given the, you know, the circumstances. But if you are in a situation where you don't have those spe specific circumstances, then what's the problem? Why not just save the planet? Well, that one I remember specifically was a treaty violation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They had a pro they had a problem because they couldn't help the planet because that would let the evil people come in and also do stuff to the planet. Yes. <laughs> so it's, you know, a prime directive by a, a different sort of well, avenue of justification. <laughs> well, the legally. one that the they have the I'm forgetting the name now, but they do have the stand-in for the Federation in Stargate, which always leads to some very interesting episode interactions. <laughs> where they have the hyper-advanced human society that could very easily solve all of humanity's problems at a stroke, but they have a very, very strict rule of non-interference with other cultures. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's basically, those. all of those episodes are basically like, you know the Federation, their prime directive, how much would it suck if you were on the other end of that? Yes. <laughs> oh, uh... So we're just going to get all murdered and then saved by these other aliens here yeah. because... Like, you're going to watch yeah. our entire planet be destroyed because you think giving us technology would um, would just lead to our downfall. Huh. At some, you know, arbitrary time in the future. Yes. <laughs> it's like, better to let you all die now than let you kill yourselves later, am I right? Thanks. <laughs> sort of another aside, uh, you know, there was uh, an episode of Babylon 5 that kind of uh, made fun of the uh, uh, the technologically superior and culturally superior nonsense as well, uh, where uh, the the aliens that showed up were like, yeah, we will only you know make treaties with folks that we deem to be you know on the same level as us. So that's why we're here to observe, and we will you know not interfere. So uh, try to appeal to us so that we can be convinced that you are you know someone we can actually interact with. <laughs> Uh, it's like the day the earth stood still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can blow yourselves up all you like. You know, just don't, you know, bother us about it. <laughs> I still maintain that, like, you could do a really, really interesting sci-fi show about a hyper-advanced civilization that goes around and has to solve all of these problems on other planets with a strict non-interference policy. <laughs> like that would be such an interesting way to frame a thing they have to get, be able to infiltrate the planet gather as much cultural information as they can work out how to to like fix the problems by doing as little as possible so that you don't interfere with the natural course of evolution 
<laughs> you know, do you uh, engage in small, you know, alterations here or there? Do you do, you know, some sort of technological widget that causes something to happen that seems just natural? Do you, you know, say, oh, you know, maybe if we happen to have a comet pass by at the right time, things will end up okay because the right people will freak out and the other uh, folks won't, or people will take it as a sign of this, that, or the other thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it can be a very sort of like, you know, we are have to investigate the culture and understand them enough uh, in order to make these uh, sort of uh, little pokes here and there in order to uh, get things done. Yeah, it could be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I do think that um, the writers always write, write themselves into a corner with this show a lot because you have this generalized American idea to justify why an incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, incredibly resource-rich people are not doing anything about all of these problems in the world (laughs) and a lot of it comes down to well you know you can't help everyone things are complicated etc etc but you've created a scenario in which these people have so much magic technology that in fact you could help everyone yes (laughs) you know uh, know, every civilization that you know doesn't have sci-fi tv show problems you know we can go in out then you know and solve their biggest problems there and you know you know maybe even some of their smaller Mm -hmm. ones they don't notice but you know (laughs) like on earth now we would have a mass amount of logistical problems to solve we are definitely producing enough viable food that we could say like end world hunger right the hell now if we if we chose to try to figure it out but yes you would have a massive amount of logistical operation to work out with that Mm-hmm. In Star Trek world, they've solved the logistical problem. Yeah, just beam everything everywhere. It's fine. <laughs> we got uh, you know effectively infinite energy forever uh, due to antimatter magic, I guess. Um, you know, and sometimes fusion uh, and uh, batteries that you know last for centuries, I guess, because you know we sometimes run into yeah this Federation colony has been uh, you know you know our ruin or whatever has been here for decades and. Lights still turn on. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, this radio has just been going for thousands of years. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, apparently all of that is possible in the Star Trek tech. So uh, yeah, if we had like even a few items there, even if we couldn't rever- uh, reverse engineer it, just reproduce it, uh, it would solve ma- many major problems here on Earth and, uh, you know, re you know rework the paradigm of how our so- uh, uh, society can operate. And there would be less people starving in various parts of the world because they'll have access to all the food they need. So I think is what this is what ticks me off so much about both Prime Directive episodes and then the people going like, well, technically they could be doing something, something. Because like these episodes are blatantly just a justification for why the U.S. doesn't need to do anything about starving people in other countries. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, we, we, we could do something here. Hmm. But we're going to pretend we can't. Yeah. I mean, you you want to feed everyone in Haiti? I don't know. Could that turn mm. out bad somehow in some unspecified way that we aren't going to think about? Yeah, you know, there'll be people who who aren't dying randomly, uh, you know, due to the circumstances of their birth. <sighs> well, or even well, in America, you want to that? feed everyone in America? I don't know. Mm. Uh, uh, it was always funny it's like well why don't we solve our own problems in america first well we aren't so (laughs) if we could like 
solve problems anywhere. Maybe we should do that. It doesn't matter if it's in America or not. <laughs> anyway, I, I want to talk about medical ethics for a few moments. Mm-hmm. So, um, who gave Pulaski, uh, you know, the uh, permission to operate on a small child for an optional surgery that, uh, you know, is kind of, you know, doing something horrible to her brain? Yeah. I mean, we we don't know how risky this is, but yeah, there's some there's some very seedy consent issues happening here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not even an argument to be had. This is wrong. This is a non-consensual operation that you're doing for the supposed good of the culture. Yes. So which like oh, happens a lot, you know. That's how we've justified sterilizing people for generations. This is uh this is horrific to me. Uh, and uh, the the fact that. You know, Pulaski, who in this episode is one of the most you know outspoken skeptics of the Prime Directive, who is very much a you know you know you know it's like yeah, let's go and stop that plague on the planet and let's stop the geological catastrophe, uh, and you know only how it starts running into you know it's like eh, sort of uh, you know uh, uh, commitment to things here. You know when Picard's like, well, what about a war? Like, well. There's a whole different sort of set of circumstances there. Uh, so that's kind of a cheap argument for starters. Um, but, you know, even still, she's very much, you know, if the prime directive kind of sucks, guys, you know, maybe mm. we should have some humanity here. Yeah, <laughs> I know, know Worf, they, you know, doesn't care, but, you know, the rest of us. <laughs> then they had, they always have an easy way to deal with this. Like mm-hmm. there would, yes, there would still be really dodgy consent issues, but you could argue that the Federation, like, respects people's autonomy enough that they will even give a certain amount of decision-making power to a small child you know Mm -hmm. like we can explain stuff well enough we respect people's autonomy like it's not the best but given the fact that we cannot you know reasonably contact this person's guardians yeah um you could in fact explain that this is something she's going to have to keep secret her entire life or be branded a crazy person Yes, and, you know, we don't want you to be hurt, so you can keep this a secret, or we could do a thing that makes it so that you don't have to worry about that, and that will mean you don't remember your friend here, but it will make your life easier in the long run. And, well, the uh, the kid can then think about it for a little bit and make a decision, and you hope that they are able to follow you know uh, up if they do decide not to get their mem- uh, the memory erased, uh, you know, that they, you know, do what they, you know, you know are basically promising to do by, by doing that. Um, or, you know, maybe they do want to be branded a crazy person. Um, but, uh, you know, and you just got to trust them, you know. And like, but, yeah, still dodgy as all get out. But, uh, you know, <laughs> at this point, too, you know, you you are still interfering with the natural cultural evolution of the planet because a random thing happened and you're saying we need to take the memories of the random thing away Mm -hmm. you know like this is not that much different than saying this random girl saw a comet and then started a weird comet based religion and that influenced (laughs) the planet like yeah the uh uh, there's a lot of things that come up later in various star trek where you know, something uh, sort of accidentally happens. And sometimes they're good about, okay, you know, let's, quote, fix our divot, as they say. Uh, yeah, and other times it's like, oh, no, this is the worst thing ever. We need to, like, try to cover this up and, you know, go super invasive. And 
I do kind of respect that in a, uh, I think it's next season, uh, they basically try to uh, repeat this memory erasure thing on some uh, a guy, and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, we're just sort of taking away this tool now, uh, in order to basically, you know, uh, you know, showcase that mm, maybe things aren't so easy here, guys. Uh, yeah, and- like let's let's erase the memory. Oh darn, yeah. uh, <laughs> our trick doesn't work. Shit. <laughs> and yeah, it's just. Mm. I don't know. I, 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 I like the idea that they, you know, even if you do, you know, interact with the society as minimally as possible, that you know you are going to have some impact on them in some fashion, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes they are not going to be aware of what that impact is. You know, maybe you have a whole episode where there is a, uh, a, you know, a situation on a planet, and you know the Enterprise crew is not even not beaming down they're not doing any sort of infiltration stuff but they're doing things completely from space and you know they're altering the ionosphere or something like that let's say you know stuff you know stuffing that they you know uh iron age civilization is unable to you know comprehend or interact with directly uh and you know you know meanwhile on the surface we you know sort of cut over and it's like oh you know here's someone who has uh you know uh put together a rudimentary telescope and they're spotting some sort of weird, you know, new new moon that's very small, but it seems to pass over every 90 minutes or so. That's kind of curious. What does this mean? And uh, you can have a whole drama about, you know, uh, what does it mean when a new moon shows up in the sky? Because, you know, that's not a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, you, you know, you could have a very interesting sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, either main plot or side plot of just the people on the planet you know, dealing with this weird thing that's happened and the people on the ship never find out about it. And so they don't have any sort of moral lemmers one way or the other, but it does still show that, you know, by just being anywhere near this planet, you can have an impact. And that's kind of reason, you know, you know, a reasonable sort of thing to have, you know, you know, to demonstrate or, uh, you know, to show. Mm hmm. I think it would be an interesting one to do any of this from like you know the other perspective you do a whole thing that's just like this weird stuff happening on the planet and you're like why is this part why is this star trek and then at the end it's like <laughs> oh here's a picture of the thing that like spawned this entire discussion yes <laughs> oh look it's the enterprise <laughs> yeah and they're uh, they're shooting a beam thing cool uh <laughs> we know what it is the locals don't <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I do, uh, you know, appreciate uh, in uh, actually as uh, Strange New Worlds, uh, this uh, in the second season, they have a, uh, an episode where there's some time travel involved. And so you, they, uh, you know, some of the characters end up on uh, 21st century Earth uh, for, uh, for a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, here's a picture of a Romulan Warbird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's other context here. I don't want to, spo- you know, do some spoilers yeah. here, but it's very much a, like, we, oh, the audience, recognize. theorist. Yeah, yeah sure. Ale- <laughs> Ooh. Uh. Uh, hmm. Hand scratcher here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want more stuff like that. Less memory racing for, you know, small children, because that's mm-hmm. just horrific to me. Yeah, that's a pretty awful. And Pulaski shouldn't be into this. Yes. Maybe Pulaski, you know, you know, is using this as a cover for her, uh, you know, you know, distaste of the prime directive. It's like, all right, I'll follow orders and, you know, you know, try to make a minimum impact in order mm-hmm. to please Picard here or something like that. 
Or maybe she just likes erasing people's memories. Or maybe know? because she like disagrees with the Prime Directive so much, she didn't. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so yeah, Captain, I'll totally do this. Which then would explain why it doesn't work in the later episode. Yeah. See, the memories are completely gone. She has to be unconscious until we leave, though. So, you'll, you know, no way to check up on that. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, could I even give the kid, uh, like, a, you know, a drug or something like that that makes it, you know, hard to sort of, uh, uh, you know, focus uh, if she does wake up so that she doesn't recognize Data if, you know, uh, you know she wakes up before, you know, he drops her off. And so Yudata's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't here. Bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. So Pulaski, uh, there's some, there's some, maybe some interesting things going on here that we don't know the answers to. Hmm. I do think that just the amount of horrible ethical problems that you can find in any Prime Directive episode just shows you how, like, ill-conceived is a storytelling device that whole thing became. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, maybe at some point they'll... Uh, set down a uh, a prime directive prime uh a new version where you know it's like all right we're going to actually like set down some rules and ethics about this and sort of make it clear what the whole package is as opposed to we're just going to use this as a uh, storytelling technique to uh avoid or justify certain things mm-hmm. yeah so codify it that's allowed anyway uh, that's the most the big stuff i wanted to talk about yeah i think we've gotten to most of our thingies and yes. you know Everything's depressing, like it always is, because colonialism. Yes. Dang it, colonialism. And non-consensual surgeries. So anyway, now it's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Our various contestants here are racking up various points, uh, and we are ready to hand out some prizes, though I, I was sure that there was another contestant around here. I, I just can't remember them right now. Anyway, uh, our first prize is the Shut Up Wesley prize, which goes to Ensign Davies for a sudden reversal where Wesley gets to sh- have him shut up and do the damn scan already. What does he win, Gepwin? Wesley wins one of those little, like, like joke keychains with the pre-recorded sound clips so you can like he can just have all of these things like in his little little sound chips so shut up wesley and they hit the buds like you shut up shut up wesley shut up wesley shut up wesley this is what you sound like shut up wesley. <laughs> i like it uh, and maybe we'll be a uh, be big seller on uh, risa hmm Anyway, our second prize is the What Prime Directive Prize, which goes to Data for apparently not realizing he should probably get that whole Prime Directive discussion sorted out weeks earlier than he did, you know, because, you know, this massive time skips here. What does he win, Gapwin? Data wins a dictionary of Starfleet orders, because, like, he's supposed to have all this memorized. He's, he's like, basically virtually incapable of dis of, like, not following regulations and orders. So obviously the problem is nobody ever told him this. <laughs> it's like, Dana, did you ever read the regulations book? No, why would I? <laughs> no one told me to. <laughs> Our uh, third prize is the medical malpractice prize, which goes to Pulaski for, for performing invasive and medically unnecessary brain surgery on a child without the parent's consent. What does she win, Gepwin? 
Pulaski wins. I mean, this is why she got kicked off the ship. She's she's get she's being investigated as we speak. From this point on, it just takes them a while, you know, because you know, military bureaucracy. Yes, uh, they don't really uh, highlight why she left, so that makes sense actually. Yeah, they don't even mention it. Just next season, mm-hmm. the old She's doctor gone. is back. Let's let's forget this entire episode ever happened. Indeed. Our uh, final prize for today is the Good Talk Prize, which goes to the command crew for trying to, at least, you know, trying to, uh, sort out the right and wrong of the Prime Directive, uh, you know, having uh, various uh, different perspectives on it. Uh, some of them, which are a little absurd, Riker. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? I think they win a door lock on this stupid room, because, like, there's so many times where they should have just stayed in here and talked through the whole episode. <laughs> like, you could have solved so many problems that way. Yes. <laughs> like, this is one of those, you're not leaving until we figure this out scenarios. You know, Picard might get uh, testy about the whole thing, but, you know, he's locked in there too, so he has to deal. Anyway, that's all I got here for this week, uh, Gepwin. Uh, our various contestants are, uh, uh, who were they again? <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us, whoever all of you are, and uh, we're going to uh, go Gepwin. all Zix can still remember the outro. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Ooh, I'm lost. Yeah. So, next time. So, uh, do you like geometry? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I liked doing geometric proofs in high school. Hmm. Well, uh, do you like uh, three-dimensional objects that are regular and have six sides? <laughs> six, that, that would be a sec, what would that, septagon? <laughs> oh, yeah, seven, yeah. isn't it? Sectagon? Oh, it's Sectahedron. a three-dimensional object, you know. You know yeah, isn't a three-dimensional hedron? Like, you know, cube? Six sides? Oh, cube. Yep. Yeah, so <laughs> sectahedron. <laughs> maybe maybe big ones that are larger than the Enterprise. Fill <laughs> cyborgs. Yeah, sectahedrons filled with cyborgs. <laughs> Sounds better that way. <laughs> yeah, and maybe we have a, a, a prominent letter in this uh, next episode, too. <laughs> uh, the next episode, we get the... Uh, the the thing that I think is kind of funny because like even the episode agrees that they're shoehorning this in, so it's we get Q who, which um, carries on the the tradition of naming any episode with Q in it Q something, except um, tapestry. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Couldn't think of anything. The Something about loom, question? but place it with a Q. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess there's also a uh, death wish. Uh, um, but, you know. Yeah, it doesn't Queen last, wish. but we're still doing it as of now. Yes. <laughs> the you know, this one barely has Q in it. Yeah, he's uh, a taunter. It, it's a bit more of a uh, encounter in Farpoint uh, sort of uh, remix, uh, you know, that he's uh, present, he's a threat, yeah. but he's not the main focus of most of the episode. Yeah, Q's in it, and Guinan's in it, and yeah, you know, I can't think of anything else important that shows up. Mm. I yeah. don't think anything mm. in this episode really affects stuff later. 
I think there's like a like a, a scene where Riker opens up a drawer and there's like a baby inside. Yeah, That's and everyone tries weird. to forget that. Yeah. Everyone mm. tries really hard to forget that. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting at the time, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is the first appearance of the Borgs. Mm-hmm. And it's so not the Borgs. <laughs> they don't figure out the Borg until basically first contact. Kind of, yeah. Uh, I, I, I will say that there might be a good reason for that in-universe, in that the Borg are still evolving, that they are still, you know, you know changing over time. And, uh, and so the Borg of this point in time being radically different than some of the Borg that come later kind of makes sense when you think about that uh, as sort of a uh, possibility. Uh, because, you know, suddenly... Uh, you know, we uh, we don't do this, or we do do this now, and you know this behavior change is now taken over. You know, it's adapting to uh, changing circumstances. Yeah, you could definitely follow a lot of stuff through to how humanity's encounters with the Borg shaped the Borgs, mm-hmm. or perhaps encounters with folks that we never have met so far, or maybe they've uh, assimilated some technology. And it's like, hmm, maybe we should change our paradigm slightly to be more adaptable or more you know prone to survival or more able to assimilate uh things uh, it's like you know there there's a lot you can sort of do once you sort of uh you know let go of the borg have to be one thing and one thing only mm-hmm. so that's going to be soon though the other the other interesting way to to talk about the borg is to say what do hr geiger and captain power and the soldiers of the future have in common <laughs> Uh, is it little arm dealies? Yeah, little yes. arm dealies. <laughs> so anyway, this is gonna this is gonna be one of the most influential episodes we get. Nominates for three Emmys, wins two Emmys, introduces the most iconic Star Trek race villain in the history of the franchise. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, Klingons are up there, but you know they you know they're just behind these guys. Gives us some weird hints of Guinan's backstory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the whole, uh, I'm going to put my hands up and that's going to mean something, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. They need to stop doing that, my God. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's next time. We get Borgs, we get Qs, we get Guinans. Mm-hmm. It's a good time, except for the Enterprise where people, you know, die. Yes. Yeah, well, only a few people die and uh, we realize, oh, that there is actually like a toilet on the ship. Because yeah. the Borg run off with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, with the bathroom. <laughs> Our only bathroom that we've ever showed on the Enterprise. <laughs> They've taken it. <laughs> Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. What is this? Some sort of cube? You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix, 
and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>